forward in Psalm 1, verse 137, we see another portion where David, although it seems very similar, there's many different doctrines and there's many different teachings that we can learn from this, and we're going to look at the inerrancy of Scripture today once again. He writes, Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. Thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. My zeal hath consumed me because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. I am small and despised, yet do not I forget thy precepts. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. We need to remember that. Trouble and anguish have taken hold on me, yet thy commandments are my delight. The righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall live. Last week, one of the points that we have been learning as we have been reading, seven points that have been brought up from this progressive Christian society, is one of the reasons that they say that, the, the, that Scripture is not holy and it's not inerrant is because there are so many versions of the Bible. I think for people that don't understand, I think that is a very legitimate gripe. And so when there's so many of them out there and they're being made, they're being made just all the time, there's all kinds of not just different Bibles and different translations of Scripture, there are all these commentaries and all these books about all of this metaphysical and all trying to marry all these things like theistic evolution and the power and the energy in the air and all these things and marry it with Scripture and trying to turn God into something that He isn't. And so basically this assault that's against the inerrancy of Scripture, it's manifested in actual corporate worship today in other churches where there's so lack of true Scripture and there's more of everything else and you can see why. When it's been declared that the inerrancy of Scripture is now not the standard anymore, but it's also, it's, it's actually, it's, it's, an, it's, it's errant because men wrote it and that's another thing they say, which is a total lie they've been able to catch the attention of people. And boy, has it brought a whole lot of crowds of people that really love to just go in and learn whatever they want. Pastor. You know, the thing is, it's great to have a standard Bible like the King James. Amen. Amen. And, and while Pastor Olson is here, I would love his help on what we were talking about last week, and, and we can talk about this for a minute. One of the things that we know is the standard by we live, live by, it, what we know ultimately is Scripture is our ultimate standard. But what we brought up last week, what is the importance of our creeds and confessions? That is the importance that we have... We were, as I was studying last week, I actually ran into a message where there was a gentleman who was given a wonderful message regarding creeds and confessions. We have creeds and confessions in the Christian faith that have, this is not NIV. This is not the living Bible. This is the Westminster Confession of Faith, and every Bible verse that backs up the question and answers, which we're going to look at later today, is all King James Bible from the original manuscripts. That's why this is one of our creeds and confessions. This is the larger and shorter catechism. This is the Westminster Confession of Faith. And isn't it amazing how the very first page you turn to is of the Holy Scriptures? 
They were struggling with this hundreds of years ago with the inerrancy of Scripture. This isn't something new. Teresa. 1647. Men died writing this. This is an incredible confession. It's, a, it's the constitution of our church. Pastor. Right. Well, you know, you can take the Bible a whole lot of different ways. A lot of people take it a lot of different ways. And, you know, the thing is, is that somebody can come into the church or be a part of the church and say, well, I think this church teaches Arminianism. Mm. Don't you know that's what it teaches? Well, we've got the creeds and confessions that show us that it's not Arminianism. That's right. Amen. With what about the websites where the churches you go on? This was another thing that this pastor I was listening to said that it brought up a very interesting topic. You go on a website to look up a church. We just had that with a young man in this church who's moving down to Virginia. He's been looking at churches all throughout the Virginia area. He looks at the creeds and confessions, and then he went on and saw the pictures of the videos of the church. He was like, "They believe in this creed and confession. This is how they worship. It doesn't mesh." And when you go online and you see that they have these creeds and confessions, and then you go to their Facebook website, and there's nothing but guitars, and there's, I mean, I mean drums. I mean, there's nothing wrong with guitars. It, there's no, I mean, I love to hear a good guitar. But it's different on a Sunday morning worship service when it's an electric guitar with drums, and it's rock music. And that's the worship service. I'm talking about drums. I'm talking about a whole different setting. And you've got this great big dark stage. It looks like a concert hall. And this little teeny tiny glass pulpit way off to the left. And basically the guy, he tiptoes up and he says about 20 minutes of a, some little like intervention kind of service. And the rest of it is two hours of praise and worship. But some of these churches I've seen, there's three of them, have the Westminster Confession of Faith as their creed. Something doesn't make sense. Matthew, sorry, go ahead. Right. So that's why we use the piano and all that. Even though the Bible is specific, doesn't give specific instruments, but like it's more about filling the blanks of that. Right, and we've seen a whole different change of the, of the way funerals are set up these days. That's a good point, Pastor. Well, the thing I've drawn to what Matthew's saying is music should fit what you're doing with it. Right. And there's different types of music for different types of things. Right. Right. Uh, well, we, you go, I'm sorry, go ahead. Right. Right. 
Right? You don't use like some battle music for putting a baby to sleep and the poor baby. (laughs) Everything, it's like what you preached years ago. I'll never forget Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time and a place for everything, isn't there? Right? Matthew and then Jerry had his hand up next. Go ahead. Right, and there's a there, there there's a factor of reverence also that's extremely important when it comes to that, Jerry. Well, it is. Right. Right. Well, it, it, that's a good point because it reminds me back in high school when I went to Perry Hall Christian, they used to have, I wanted to get involved in youth groups. And I'm thinking, well, there's got to be a good youth group out there. So we would go to this one called Powerhouse. If anybody ever heard of it, it was on Friday nights over at Trinity. I'd never been there before. I had no idea what I was up against. So I go over there, and it turns out to be one of those nights they had one of these contemporary Christian rock bands. They had that stage full it, it was no different than going to uh, some kind of a real massive rock concert down the Civic Center. And by the time they actually got the Bible out to read, to, to read and give some kind of a lesson, which was only a teeny tiny bit in between sets, you were so nervous and so wired up from the guitars and the drums, you could, it would be, it's like settling down and like you couldn't even concentrate. It's like having an attention span of a three-year-old. He couldn't concentrate on it because of all the dark. And, the, and like Jerry said, there was the, the, the costumes and all the glitter. It, it was just totally different. I mean, does it have a, some of that have a place? Well, they have a great big concert for Fourth of July at Oregon Ridge Park. It's fantastic. The guitars, the stringed instruments, it's incredible. But when you're talking about that type of music on Sunday morning, which is a lot of places... That creates a whole problem. It's a real problem. Matthew. Right. Yeah, it's, it, it, gets to be, it gets to be a little too much. And basically what my point is, is getting to one of the statements, and I've heard many what I talked to over the years about the, that type of worship, is where do you get that in the Bible? And the first thing they do is go to the Psalms and say that there are hymns and songs and musical stringed instruments. But I don't believe that David was playing that kind of music when he was honoring the Lord. He was a master poet. He was a master musician. He did all of these things, and when his life is winding down and he's older, look at the words that he's writing here still. 
He's speaking of the ultimate reverence of God. And when we're reading these verses, one of the things we see with this assault against the inerrancy of Scripture, look at what David says. He says in verse 137, he says, Righteous are there. Righteous are thou. Thy words are pure. They're perfect and they're true. He says, Righteous are thou, O God, in the presence of the Lord. What we're learning here in the presence of the Lord, if we can learn, if we want to, in our hearts, really understand how to revere the Lord in worship, there has to be a sense of awe in our hearts for a God that even David himself said that he could not even begin to understand that his ways are past finding out. God's ways are past finding out. I remember Martin Luther said something very, I have to paraphrase this because I certainly don't have it memorized, but he spoke about how mankind has such a lack of understanding and can't even scratch the surface of a righteous God that he has to turn into God into something personal for himself, a God that has no justice, a God that has no wrath, no punishment, no nothing. He's just nothing but his, the, your little buddy. That's basically the God that people have turned him into. But we're looking at a God that has every right to destroy everything on this earth because of our sin against him, original sin. And when you look at it from that perspective, which is the only truth, then you see a merciful God and you ask, why hasn't he? Why hasn't he obliterated this whole world? He did it once with a flood, just about took the whole world out, but he left one family as a mercy to spare mankind. And we see how the Lord is incredible with mercy. And we see that, you know, I remember back in the 80s and in the 90s, the word awesome was just really taken out of context. You were always hearing, well, that's awesome, dude. You know, stuff like that. Surfer language and all. What does the word awesome really mean? We see that basically, if we are in awe of the Lord, He will have people afraid of Him. He will have them afraid when it comes to sin. It's not something to take lightly. Because in Scripture, there were those that just fell down on their faces because they were in awe of Him. Can someone look up Deuteronomy chapter 28 and read verse 9 and 10, please? And as you're looking that up, this true sense of awe is extremely important for us to define. And we'll look at that in a minute. Deuteronomy 28, verses 9 and 10. I think that the fear of the Lord, I know that the fear of the Lord, as Solomon wrote, is the beginning of wisdom. So when we see how people will be afraid of him, that's the level that this is being written on. Fearing the Lord and having wisdom to know that the very, very God that the people defy and blaspheme has the power to rub them out into nothing. He has the power to destroy them, as many times we saw in Scripture. And that fear is a righteous fear. It's a very healthy fear that we are to fear what is possible, what the Lord is capable of if we defy His commandments. And how can we even begin to fear that Lord and understand these dominion mandates if we don't even believe they're perfect? If they're inerrant. I mean, if they're not inerrant. That's what we're really struggling with. The true the true definition, the sense of all, is this. It's defined from a Merriam-Webster, 
and emotion variously combining dread, veneration, and wonder that is inspired by authority or by the sacred or sublime. Dread, terror. And we see this about how David says, I esteem all thy precepts. And he said, I hated every false way. Why? There was, as Pastor Britton said last week, there is positive and there are negative connotations in Scripture. There are positive, there is encouragements, but there is a lot of negative because of sin. And we know that David says, thy word is very pure. He says, therefore thy servant loveth it. And it's amazing with the grace that there is in God's word and the mercy. Always from Christ. There is a great attachment that David has to the word of God. Can someone look up Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7? Ephesians 4, 7. Whoever can get that. What a measure. The measure of Christ is in, it's, it's innumerable. It's infinite. And that's how much mercy and the measure of the grace that he gives us. What is grace? What is defined as? What is grace? Anyone remember? That's it. Unmerited favor. What does unmerited mean? Right. Miss Sierra? Yes. That's right. We didn't do anything to deserve it. What did we do? What could we offer that we could atone for what we've done against a very righteous and a very just God? How can we atone for that ourselves? Well, we've been... Dave? You can't. It's not possible. So when we talk about Wednesday night, ultimately... What is death? What, is, what does Scripture say that death really is? What is it? It's a wage. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If it is a wage, how can we atone and how can we pay for what we did against God to deserve and have death? We die. And the only reason that we, when we die, we cannot get up out of that casket and walk out and, and just raise ourselves from the dead is because sin has us pulled into it. Christ could do that. He could do it. He did it over and over and over again with other people. He did it with himself. He had the power after three days to raise himself from the dead. And that's Paul the Apostle. That was his message, what we talked about all through the book of Acts. And so with that, if, this, if the wage of sin is death, then where do we go to find out where the atonement is and where salvation is? All throughout Scripture. That's where we go. It's our ultimate standard. David knew this. It says that, but, every, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ, not to the measure of the gift of man, to Christ himself. David loved these commandments because he esteemed them. And it's amazing how many of these words that he esteemed them, and he calls this word, the scripture, he calls it the precepts, the judgments, the testimonies. It's amazing how a lot of these attributes what we're going to read here is what you read in the confession are the attributes of God. Perfect, righteous, just, merciful. No fault can be found in them at all. We must love them because they are the epitome of His perfect image. He rules by His word by perfect providence and He legislates the world by eternal decrees that are righteous, they are just, they are dependable and they are uplifting for those that keep his commandments. 
We look at these verses and we're reading. We just read 137 and that 138. Here we see the testimonies that thou hast commanded. They are righteous. They're faithful. David says, I have zeal in verse 139. It has consumed me because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. David said, I have not. The, pagan, the pagans and even the pagan Israelites, he's saying, they have forgotten thy words. They have forgotten thy precepts and thy testimonies. But David says, I haven't forgotten them. And that's a good question this morning. Do we forget them? Well, what's one of the easiest ways to forget them? Dave. In, in a nutshell, it's all interpretation. Right. This is the original. Amen. Everything else is beyond interpretation. It's their direction. It's an objective, isn't it? And that's the whole question. That's a great point. The problem is, does, do, the way that we forget it, is anyone actually reading it? Does anybody hear of the new Bible that's being created now? It's another one, another new Bible. Now, where do you hear about this one? Matthew. there has to be faith. We're, we're, we're taught about faith and having faith in God's holy and errant word comes from the hearing and the reading of it and the studying of it. That's why we're told to study to show ourselves approved. That's a very good statement. And what Dave says is extremely important because as we spoke about last week, you go to fix an appliance or you go to fix your car. You don't want 30 different manuals that have 30 different interpretations on how to do the brakes. You want the one standard from the manufacturer that knows what he's talking about. This is the standard from the manufacturer that knows what he's talking about. And we have to have faith on that. And when it comes to the creeds and the confessions that Pastor and I were talking about, in this, isn't it amazing that this is one of the creeds and the confessions that has a whole section on effectual calling? The decrees of God and the doctrine of election? Isn't that incredible? Where do you see that in other creeds and religions of all these false 
false narratives that are out there. A God that's providential. A God that knows what He's talking about. And then you go back to Psalm 119, and as you read it, as you read it, one, one Hebrew letter at a time, over and over, the repetition is fantastic. And I have to say it like this. I, studying Psalm 119 and trying to teach it, a lot of the verses sound the same. So what? So what if we talk about it over and over and over again? How many times do you watch the news and you say to see the same thing over and over and over and over again with absolutely no definitive answers to the problems? How many times do you watch your favorite television show and they show the rerun a thousand times and you sit there and you watch it anyway? This is what we need to have repetition. And, 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 and until somebody says to me, Psalm 119, I've got it memorized backwards and forwards, I think it's really good to keep reifying how important these words that David gave us to describe the inerrancy of Scripture. He says they're pure, they're perfect, they're righteous. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, going back to Psalm 19. Matthew, you had your hand up one more time. And some Bibles leave the word completely out. That's another problem if you do do a comparison. So David calls these, thank you, David calls these, he, he calls these words perfect and righteous. Let's see, let, let's see a couple more um, in, in very important uh, uh, applications here before we go, 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 go forward to, to the confession. He says in verse 141, I think it's fascinating, David says, I am small and I'm despised. And David says, I will not forget the precepts of the Lord. Oh, wait a minute. Okay, we have to go back to this again. Who is calling himself small and despised? One of the greatest kings that ever lived, and he was king of the northern and the southern kingdom. He's saying, I'm small. I'm despised. He's saying, compared to God, which I have total all in, I'm nothing. That's a penitent spirit. That's an incredible, incredible way of, of describing. David never forgot his humble begin, beginnings as a little shepherd who was completely incensed by the hissing and the blasphemies of wicked Goliath. And here we can see at the very beginning of David's life when we start seeing his presence in the Old Testament, why did he go up against Goliath? Yes, biblical interpretation. There's Goliath standing there cursing the name of God and blaspheming. And David says, I don't care if this man that's nine foot or whatever he was grinds me into powder. He's not going to do this. Not on my watch he's not. And if Saul's too much of a coward to go up against Israel, I'll do it. And I'm not even going to wear armor because the Lord will protect me. And that's what happened, didn't it? One stone. That's all the Lord needed. He didn't even need that. One little stone. Just like with Gideon. Remember Gideon was whining and complaining on how many men he had? I need 30,000. Ah, the Lord said no. I need, you know, how many thousand? All the way down to 300. The Lord said no. I don't even need 300. But you're going to go there and you're going to make a lot of noise. And you're going to win. Who won? It was Gideon's army that won, of course we know. Well, small and despised was his own account. And when we are small and despised, we remember the Lord Christ Christ. Our Lord hates pride. 
Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Remember, Patrick Henry used to call himself a bag of worms. Martin Luther referred to himself as a bag of dust. <laughs> Pastor Evans over and over preaches here. He says, I'm fit fuel for the fires of hell. Paul the Apostle said, O wretched man that I am, least of the Apostle. And you know, even Christ came to this earth as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, a tender plant is a root out of a dry ground. He came down in the form of a human and humbled himself. Can someone look up Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 to 5? Matthew 18, 3 to 5. And how beautiful are those words when the Lord speaks about humility. He speaks about lowering yourself. He speaks about being a servant. That's what Christianity is all about, is being a servant. And when you learn that, you can start getting a little bit of a scratching of the surface of what Christ went through while He was here on this earth. As His servitude never stopped all the way to His death. He never stopped serving. Remember what happened after He was resurrected in His glorified state. What was He doing on the, on the shore? When Peter was out there in the boat with John the Beloved, and Peter saw him, now this is after Peter denied him, what did John the Beloved say to him? He said, he said, I will watch your boat. You go in there and you see your friend, your Savior. And what was Christ doing on the shore, do you remember? Yes. He was making them dinner. He was serving them. I think that's an incredible application on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords coming down and serving His people. How many times did He serve? Over and over again. He would go into the house of Lazarus and eat with them. He would, he would help all along the way. Those that We don't even begin to understand how many people He healed along the way in His ministries when we read the Gospels. And Christ says that you should humble yourself as a little child. We read that thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. We are creatures and are ruled by a great creator. His law is truth and is eternal. It's eternal for rewards and punishments. And this is why we must study to make our call and election sure. Christ's law is binding. It brings all things into subjection. World leaders, politicians, pagan worship, education that is anti-God. And it's, once again, isn't it incredible how these ten... These are dominion mandates. They are not ten suggestions. And how they're being rooted, and they've been taken for the last at least 40 years, rooted out of government buildings, rooted out of schools. I remember out in Colorado, I think we were, maybe it was, no, it was Oklahoma, they had a big, beautiful, a big, beautiful statue, or it was, a, it was a memorial to the Ten Commandments, and they made them take it off. But isn't it amazing how stupid that is when they love the protection of those commandments? Those commandments are very important. Getting back to the new Bible that's being written. Has anybody heard of the new Bible that's being written right now? What is the, what is the legal act that's been, that, that's been put into effect as of, I think it was three, three and a half years ago, it's called DIE, D-I-E. It's protection for all diversity, inclusiveness, and equality. That's what the new Bible is about. It's going to change the words around to make it look like Jesus totally approved of homosexuality. 
That's, that's, and, it's, and there's going to be all kinds of inferences to things that people twist out of the Bible. One of the things I think I heard of, not, this might not be in this Bible, but I've heard this before, what about the relationship between David and Jonathan? Oh, they're going to pervert that and take, tear that into pieces. How dare them? I would not want to be them when the Lord gets a hold of them, and it's coming soon. It's coming very soon. That was a holy, godly, Christian relationship between those two men that loved the Lord and prayed together for their people. And they're going to take that and they're going to twist it and pervert it. And that's what happens when you see all of these different renditions. It's amazing. You want to talk about evolution? The thing that I have a problem with is I've never seen evolution. But what I have seen is devolution. Things go down. They don't go up. Where are things getting better? Since they started rewriting Scripture, those Bibles have gotten worse and worse and worse and worse. They haven't gotten better. They can't because we have the ultimate standard here. David's, this is what David's telling us here. We just went through verse 141. Look at 142. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is truth. From our confession, I'd like to read this, and we can get back, even if it's next week, that's fine. Here's a good question. That our, our confession, one of our creeds, our confession brings up of the Holy Scripture. In, in, in question four, how doth it appear that the Scriptures are the Word of God? If we can come up with a case to prove that the Scriptures are the Word of God, how can you not say that they're, how can anyone say that they're not holy and errant? Why worship a God that's not holy and inerrant? Why? The Scriptures manifest themselves to be the Word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. It's that simple. But what an incredible answer. It's to give, to give all glory to God. How can we give all glory to God when we live in a society where even most churches question Him? They question His inerrancy and they question His perfect righteousness. And they don't want to speak about sin. They don't want to talk about some of the dominion mandates in Scripture that are so pivotal to our Christian learning. How can you cut and add? How can, one of, how can any one of God's creation be perfect enough to sit there and literally censure God and take His Scriptures and leave things out and put them in? And then some, some say, well, I'll worship this. Some say, I'll worship that. You know what a big controversy is today? You know how many people hate Paul the Apostle? I couldn't believe the staggering numbers I was reading that people hate Paul the Apostle. Why? For the stupidest reasons. So, and this is one of this is the general reason. Why do they hate him? That's a big one. Yes, they say he's a misogynist. Teresa. Yeah. Why, why do people want to just go live your life as a heathen? I don't know. I, I don't understand why you keep wanting to corrupt that. That's a very complex question, but a fantastic question. Pastor, thank the Lord. He has his hand up. Go ahead. <laughs> 
Right. I, that, that's right. Right. It, it, that's, that's a great point. We saw that with Paul the Apostle. We saw that they could not get away. The reason I you're on to something great because that's what mankind in his heart would want to do. But nobody can get away from running into this. They can't. No one can get away from somebody asking them a question or some kind of standard or some kind of... Uh, of, of conversation or debate about what is truth. You can't get away from it. And, they, and everyone has to face that. Lisa. All the way back in the garden. All the way, that's great. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Right. Well, that's what Augustine said. That's a... That's a good reminder. We're all being, we're a horse being ridden by one of two riders, either Christ or Satan. There's no, in, there's no purgatory horse. <laughs> there's only two, two, he says. Good. Right. right and it doesn't take much more than one of his little junior grade demons to convert us what did Christ say to Peter he said he would have you and sift you like wheat right 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 and, and when, when God saying as what you said about the garden it all started there what did Satan do to Eve? What happened there? He basically tried to rewrite Scripture and say, you will be as divine as God if you listen to me. And it works. That's the problem. Going back to what Teresa said, it works. People would just like to just say, forget about it. I don't want to talk about it. Let it go. It's too complex. It's too complicated. It's not. When Christ is calling us to be as humble as a child and to have a childlike faith, not a childish faith, it's very, very important that we have these, these scriptural precepts that King David leaves with us. And as we're all studying this together, we see well, the question is, how doth it appear that Scripture is the Word of God? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord to your God, which I command you. So, then, so can we think in our hearts that God gave us a word that's a standard by which to live by that we can depend on? 
If we do, stick to it. Don't question it. Don't sit there and question it like you might do it you know, with family members or friends and you get on a subject of a sports team and you might say, well, this was the greatest quarterback, that was the greatest quarterback, this was the best running back, that was the best pitch. Don't do that to Scripture. Give it the preeminence. Love it. Trust it. Have faith in it. We have faith in so many things. Why can't we just have faith in something that perhaps we can't physically see the God that we worship yet? We can't, but we can, we can see Him through His Word. And why can't we just have faith in it and, not, and not try to diminish it by changing it and writing a, all of these different versions of it to make big money? Lisey. Wow. It's um it was finished. Mm. And to, to jump on what Teresa said, this is why it's like we can't let the preeminence slide away. It can't be it has to change it because if other ones you know convince people that they are committed. Right. It's just the issue of it. I, I thought that was interesting because when he said that I thought, well, my guess was, you know, when the Lord says that there's only one way to heaven and it's like, yeah, it's him. Right. Because Amen. Right. And, and, and to just add on to that statement, that's the, what's wonderful about that statement is, regarding the sin part about it, people don't want a Savior. They don't believe they need to be saved. Look at David, and we can really get a good doctrinal lesson on that, where he even writes, he says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors their ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. He says, I despise myself. Why? Because I need a Savior. That's what he's saying. And we can prove it over and over and over with his writings. Jerry. Right. Right. Amen. What's that? <laughs> they forget about that one. But sorry, we ended with 21 chapters of Revelations, not 22. Matthew. Right. But, but look, today I think one of the greatest sins of the church is the sin of omission, where basically it's not what's being said, it's what's not being said. I mean, there's all kind of stuff today. Oh, don't, let's not talk about, well, I know, I'm just probably just beating this to death, but I'm sorry. Let's not talk about politics. Well, politics are really governing what's going on in the, in the church. And it's one of the biggest problems of why Christ is being eradicated. It's being pulled out of all the establishments. Little children aren't even allowed to say the Pledge of Allegiance anymore. To the God, to the flag of the United States of America, Based on a constitution that's based on the Ten Commandments. All of these things are very important for children to learn. Where are they getting taught in Sunday school classes? I hope some churches are still doing that. I think Sunday school classes are very important. Pastor said they're important because of the correspondence. That we get to talk. We get to really learn together. And it's so important. David loved that. With Jonathan. He used to pray with him. What about Paul at the river with the women? 
how he had Bible studies with them. And he went in and out of town. He had Bible studies everywhere he went. Loved to do that. Scripture. Well, we're going to finish up here, but I'd like to read another verse. This sounds familiar. Revelations, I got the next verses. Revelations 22, 18 to 19. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Well, I, I, I can easily, I think I can speak for you all as myself. I don't want my name taken out of that. I don't, I, I don't want to be, that's one party I don't want to miss. Yeah, and that, and that's, that's, that's very important. Ephesians 2.20 says, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So, if you have any understanding of Scripture, what is the chief cornerstone of Scripture? His Word. He is the Logos. He is the Word. And he tells us exactly what to do. And I don't, I've never, I, I can't imagine, I don't even remember any situation in my life that I was struggling with that I couldn't find some way to, to, uh, to, to kind of decode in Scripture, what Scripture, where the Lord would want me to have, where He would want me to be. There is certainly no sin in my life that I could say and go back and say to, over the years and say, wow, I can commit that sin over and over and over again. I don't see anything in Scripture about that. It's fine. No, it's there. It's here. You just got to dig. Next week, we'll, we'll continue on, and we have a second part of this. I would like to read here the first part of the Holy Scriptures based on David's words and kind of marry that together, and we will discuss that. And we will spend a little bit more time on this than we did on having to debunk the seven steps of those uh, horrible mandates that were given about the how Scripture has errors and it's not holy and inerrant. We're going to stay on that and we'll talk about that next week. So let's finish and uh, perhaps I'd like to ask uh, our deacon Dave, could you close us? Thank you.